The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I uh, was in England ministering to some of our international uh, mission board missionaries. And I uh, had a day in London before my flight took off to go to various places. And so I was like a madman. I had like 12 hours to go and see all these things that I've always wanted to see in London. And one of them was uh, the British Library. And there in the British Library, there are a number of things that that people like me, uh, people that, you know, love books, scholars, that kind of thing, I've always wanted to see. Like there's the, one of the oldest completely bound Bibles in the world called the Codex Sinaiticus. It was found on Mount Sinai and it's the whole Bible in Greek. And I got to, I got to be there and look at it and to sneak a photo of it. Don't tell anyone, but I, I just couldn't, I couldn't be that close to the Codex and not, there was, I figured no flash, I'll just kind of, you know, there it is. So it's right there on my phone. And to see an original first edition King James Bible, and older than that, a Tyndale Bible, one of the, I think there's only six left in the world, and there it was in the British Library. But one of the things I saw was an original autograph, a manuscript of Handel's Messiah, specifically the Hallelujah Chorus. I actually stand there and see it. And the guard was standing right near me, so I have no photo uh, of Handel's <laughs> Messiah. But I looked at it and I, and I was in awe. I love that piece. Some of you uh, share, you know, a love for classical music. Others not so much. Um, but you may know the story of how Handel composed this piece over 24 days. Incredible. And how he was, uh, you know, a, a friend came in and, and he wouldn't open the door. He wouldn't eat his food. He was just in there and was swimming in a sea of paper. All of these notes surrounding. And he had tears coming down his face. And he said, whether I was in the body or out of the body as I wrote it, I know not, God knows. But I think I did see all heaven open before me and the great God himself. The most famous uh, part of the Messiah, of course, is the Hallelujah Chorus. What most people don't know about Handel's Messiah is that I think the entire thing is Scripture. It's just Scripture. It's incredible. And, and how uh, Charles Jennings, who wrote the... Uh, the, the text for the Messiah that Handel set to music, just went through and found scriptures that testified prophetically to the coming of Christ, the person and work of Christ. But this most famous part, the Messiah, the Hallelujah Chorus, was written around three verses from the book of Revelation. And two of them are coming in the future as we have a chance, if the Lord wills, a chance to read Revelation 19.6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude... And as the voice of many waters and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Revelation 19.6. And then a few verses later, Revelation 19.16. On his robe, speaking of Christ, and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And then the text we're going to look at today. Revelation eleven fifteen, The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, 
The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. Now for 276 years music lovers have thrilled to hear these three texts. Sets of this incredible music. In 1743 when King George II heard it for the first time at the Hallelujah Chorus. He stood, he rose. People don't know exactly why he did that, but it became a tradition among music lovers that are in the know that when you get to that point in the Messiah, uh, when you hear the Holy Chorus, you stand, rise out of respect for the greatness of the theme of what's being sung. And this morning, I get to just walk through this text and talk about it. My desire is that you would have just heavenly meditations of the greatness of Christ. That you would in some sense be recaptured back into a fervent love for Christ from whatever has been pulling on your soul this week. The world, the flesh, the devil pulling on us all the time. We're prone to wander. All the time prone to drift away from Christ. And it's primarily the ministry of the word of God that draws us back, recaptures us again in the grips of Christ and grace. And that's what I pray will happen as you listen. Now we need to set context For this is the sounding of the seventh trumpet. The apostle John was in exile on the island of Patmos for the word of God, the testimony of Jesus, a small rocky island off the coast of modern day Turkey. And he had a a vision of the resurrected glorified Christ moving through seven golden lampstands. And then later, another amazing opportunity, an invitation, a voice calling him to to rise from the surface of the earth and go through a doorway into the heavenly realms. And he was enabled to do that by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. And when he went through that doorway, he saw the central reality of the universe, a throne with someone seated on it, the throne of Almighty God. And in that vision, uh, Almighty God had in his right hand a, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And Jesus Christ alone was worthy to take the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne and to break open its seven seals, which he does. And in succession, judgments come on the earth. And with the breaking open of the seventh seal, there is silence in heaven for the space of about half an hour. And then out of the seventh seal comes seven trumpets, seven angels with seven trumpets. And these seven trumpets unleash a series of horrific judgments on planet earth such as never been seen ever in human history. They are depicted there as the direct answer to cries from the suffering saints, the people of God for vengeance and justice. And the smoke of their, the incense of their prayers goes up before the heavenly altar. And an angel takes a golden censer and fills it with coals and hurls it to the earth. And so these seven trumpets are an answer to the cries for justice and vengeance. And the first trumpet results in fires raging on the surface of the earth. Burning up a third of all of the trees and vegetation and all the green grass. Burning it up. And the second trumpet sounded, resulting in a third of the sea turning into blood. And a third of the sea creatures dying. And a third of the ships sunk. And the third angel sounded his trumpet. And a a third of the fresh water 
on planet earth was poisoned to bitterness. And the fourth angel sounded his trumpet causing a third of the celestial beings, the sun, the moon and the stars to be reduced in their heavenly uh, luminosity. And then the fifth angel sounds his trumpet and up out of this, the abyss comes billowing smoke and a demonic invasion producing a level of torment, of pain, of agony such as the world had never seen. Like a locust swarm coming but with the power to sting like scorpions and the people are tormented for five months and then the sixth angel sounds his trumpet and a, a terrifying demonic army 200 million strong goes over the surface of the earth and kills a third of the human race two or three billion people maybe and despite all of these incredible judgments being poured out on planet earth we have this incredibly sad statement at the end of Revelation 9 verse 20. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of their wickedness. So despite that level of agony and judgment, the people are still hardened in their sins. So six of the seven angels have sounded their trumpets. And just like happened between the sixth and seventh seal, we have an interlude. We have a break in the action. And so we saw in Revelation 10 a mighty angel, massive, powerful, standing with one foot on the, on the dry land, one foot in the sea, his head in the clouds, radiant, powerful being. And in his right hand is a scroll laying open, a scroll with writing on it. And John is commanded to go take the scroll and eat it. And he eats it and it's, and it's sweet in his mouth and bitter in his stomach. And, and he's commanded, effectively recommissioned to go prophesy to many nations and languages and peoples and and. and uh, tribes. And so he's sent out as a prophetic messenger to the world through the writing that he's going to do. So the scroll represents the written scripture. And then in Revelation 11, the first half of this chapter, we have the two witnesses who I pre preached on last week, who I believe are flesh and blood witnesses that will stand up at a certain moment in redemptive history and tell the world what these plagues are and what's going on and, and urging people to repent and flee to Christ. So you have the combination between John's writings and then human witness, specifically these two witnesses, that give an explanation to planet earth of what God is doing, what these judgments are all about, and giving people effectively their final warning to flee to Christ. And so that's where we are. And once that's done, the seventh angel sounds his trumpet. Now, just as the seventh seal seemed to just unfold or unleash into the seven trumpets, so the seventh trumpet is going to kind of unfold or unleash into the seven bowls. But we're not going to get to them um, right away. They'll come later in, in Revelation 16. And with those seven bowls comes the final judgments at the very, very end of human history. So I think of it like a telescoping action. The seven so, uh, seals uh, resulting in the seven trumpets. And the seven trumpets then resulting finally in the seven bowls. Or like those, those cute little Russian dolls. Have you ever seen them? They look kind of like shiny uh, lacquer on them. And you pop off the top and out comes another doll. Smaller but the same kind of thing. And you pop off that one and out comes the next one. Kind of like that. If that helps you. Um, but I have that image of, of the one leading directly to the other. That's how I put these together. Because they're different. They're not identical. They cover similar but different grounds. So I think they are related judgments but different. Now before we get to the seven bowls that are going to come from the seventh trumpet, 
we're going to have over the next number of chapters, Revelation 12 and 13 and on, we're going to go behind the scenes to see Satan, his demons, and then the Antichrist and his world system that's going to be set up. So we're going to get a look uh, behind into the darkness, this present darkness that's going to escalate to a degree we can scarcely imagine, this red dragon that we're going to talk about, God willing, next, next time. Uh, and we're going to understand the career of Satan and the career then of the beast from the sea and then the beast from the earth. We're going to talk about that in Revelation 13. And then the evil world system that Satan has set up already. We're already living in it, but it's going to get to its worst level called Babylon, the great whore. Uh, we're going to understand the world and the devil and the powers that are assaulting the people of God right to the end. And that's going to lead us right to Revelation 19, the second coming of Christ. So that's where we're heading in all that. So that's context. So let's dig in now and look at Revelation 11, beginning at verse 15. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. So the seventh angel sounds his trumpet. So much of this awesome book involves waiting for God's timing. We can read it, we can read this book in, in an hour, really, one afternoon, certainly. It seems to all be happening at once, but instead there's an unfolding here. It takes time. God has a meticulous timetable for everything that he wants done. And as this vision unfolds, the sequences of the visions corresponds in a complex way to a timetable or sequence of judgments that God has already worked out in his mind that will later come on the earth. Now all of this for John was visionary. None of it was actually happening. He was just having a vision of what would come in the future and he wrote it down. And so we by faith can see it happening even though it hasn't happened yet. And the numbering, you know, first the first seal, then the second seal, then the third seal, and then same thing with the first trumpet, then the second trumpet, gives you a sense of a wise sequencing of God being the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He knows exactly what order to do these things in. But the seventh trumpet is, just by how it's received, decisive in the, in the consummation of the coming kingdom of Christ. It's decisive. Now that all this judgment has occurred, now at last the seventh angel is sounding his trumpet. And with that sounding, it's as though heaven is saying, it's finished, it's a done deal, it's as good as accomplished. Even though there's lots of chapters yet to go in the book of Revelation. So some of you being sports fans, you'll, you'll connect with this. Others, you'll just have to put up with it for a moment. But... Imagine watching a game and something so decisive happens on the field that you turn to your friend and say, this game's over. I mean, you know exactly if you're a sport, you know what I'm talking about. Something so decisive has happened that there's no way the other team can recover. So it's just a decisive moment in the game. And that seems to be the feel here. The sounding of the seventh trumpet is so decisive that there's no way the powers of evil will be able to recover. It's powerful. And what happens is we have immediately loud voices. Unlike the breaking of the seventh seal, which results in silence for a half an hour in heaven. Here we have loud voices. Powerfully loud voices. Angels and elders and the redeemed celebrating with all their might. 
And in other places, the sound of their voices is compared to a mighty waterfall. Have you ever been like the Niagara Falls or something? It's just this overpowering sound just cascading down. And they're not shy. They're not holding back. They are so excited about this. Loud voices. And they roar forth. And what do they celebrate? Verse 15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. Well, what does that mean? Well, the kingdom of the world represents that force that evidently, obviously rules the earth. Controls it. The controlling force of the earth. And notice it's singular. Not the kingdoms of the world, but the kingdom of the world. The human race really is essentially a unity. We all descend from one man, Adam. And to Adam and to, through him... The whole human race was given planet earth as a stewardship. God gave Adam one kingdom of this world. But Satan came in and usurped Adam's place. He took over the kingdom of the world. And Adam effectively surrendered the keys of that kingdom to Satan. And so Satan is in some dark way called the God of this age. Or he is in some dark way the king of this present kingdom. Now, he rules very, in a very sly, devious way. He's the power behind the throne. He's the puppet master. We see all these dictators and tyrants and all that, but he's behind it all. And so Satan tempted Christ on the mountain of temptation. He brings him up to a mountain in Luke chapter 4 and shows him in an instant all the kingdoms, plural, of the world and their glory, their riches. And he said, I will give you all their authority and splendor for it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. So notice the kingdoms become an it. It's mine. The whole thing is mine to give. It's got different features, but there's just this one kingdom of the world. And he's offering it to Jesus right there on the Mount of Temptation. And Jesus heroically answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I'm not going to fall on my face before you, a created being. So Satan has been ruling over the various large and small kingdoms and fiefdoms and, and countries and all that of the world all along. Pitting one against the other, causing one to rise, another to fall. He does all that kind of thing for his own wicked and evil purposes. But he's always been the secret power behind all of these various thrones. We're going to learn more about that next time in Revelation 12 with the red dragon. Begin to learn about it. But Christ uh, refused Satan's offer of all the kingdoms of the world on his wicked terms to bow down and worship him instead of God. Instead, Christ submitted to his father, did his father's will, and his father is going to give him the world. And that's what they're celebrating that's what, that's what the angels and the, and the elders and all of the redeemed are celebrating. The Father is giving the world to the Son. In his own time and in his own way. And notice what it says. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. That's what I mean by it being a done deal even though it hasn't happened yet. These words were written 20 centuries ago. But there's this sense of certainty. And this is that prophetic past tense voice. You see this a lot in the prophets. 
They speak about something that's way in the future as though it's already happens in the past. So you get this in Isaiah 53, uh, verse 5 and 6. He, he, being Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Well, Isaiah wrote those words seven centuries before Jesus was born. Seven centuries before Jesus was born. And yet he uses the past tense. Now for us it is past tense. But for Isaiah the prophet it wasn't. And so it's, it's a done deal. It's, as, though, it's as, as certain as though it's already happened. That's that prophetic past tense. Also we should notice that this is the fulfillment of the very thing we as disciples of Christ have been praying for throughout our Christian lives. In the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We've been praying for that. And they're celebrating here in Revelation 11 at last the answer to all those prayers. How many hundreds of millions of times have those words been said to God? And at last the time will come. Now, what is this kingdom? I've defined it as the place where the ruler openly, evidently rules. I'm going to say God. Where God clearly, no doubt about it, is ruling on the earth. Now, the reason I say that is I'm telling you God's already the king of the world. (laughs) The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's already his. And he rules it now. He just isn't openly, evidently, obviously ruling. He's secretly maneuvering free will beings to do his will whether they acknowledge him or not. And so it says in Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like a water course in the hands of the Lord. He directs it whichever way he pleases. But that's not the kind of open, evident ruling that Christ is going to do after the second coming. So we're going to see that. His will is not presently done on earth as it is in heaven. But we will see it. After the seventh angel sounds his trumpet, it will set quickly in motion the final judgments that will culminate in the destruction of Satan's wicked kingdom and of the Antichrist. And here we will at last see a fulfillment of the pledge that the Father made to the Son to give him the world. And I love this. And you can turn and look here if you want, Psalm 2, or just listen. But Psalm 2 says very powerfully, and God makes it, makes it very, very plain that he is going to give all of this to the kingdom. Just a minute, Psalm 110. It says, verse 1 and 2, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. We'll get to Psalm 2. Go ahead and turn there. But the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion and you will rule in the midst of your enemies. Well, that sit at my right hand, the way I understand it is after Christ died, after he rose again, and then he ascended, he went through the heavenly realms, the book of Hebrews tells us, went through right to the right hand of God, and we see him seated at the right hand of God. And he has been sitting there for 20 centuries. And for 20 centuries, God has been extending his scepter, Christ's scepter, to the ends of the earth. He's ruling in the midst of his enemies. But it's been a secret kind of permeation. You know what I'm saying? It's not the kind of thing that's evident and obvious. So Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and hid in crypto, is a Greek word, encrypted in a large amount of flour until it permeated the whole dough. That's been going on now for 20 centuries. But God intends a more open, obvious glory for his son. Because he was willing 
to leave heavenly glory and make himself nothing and be found as a servant and be obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Because he was willing to do that, God said, I'm going to give you the name that is above every name. And I'm going to guarantee that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so there's this open, obvious ruling of Christ. So Revelation eleven fifteen it says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The eternality of the reign. The eternality of the reign. All human kingdoms terminate in death. All of them. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of a statue with a head of gold and chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, feet, partly iron, partly clay. Daniel chapter 2. And he didn't know what it meant. Daniel came and interpreted the whole thing. And it turns out that these various precious metals or different metals all the way down represented a span of history from the Babylonian Empire through the Medo-Persian Empire through the Greek and the Romans. They represent human kingdoms. But then the focus comes in on the feet of clay. Have you ever heard about that? Someone, an individual, a great man or, or leader having feet of clay. It means a, like an Achilles heel, a weakness. And the whole thing is on these clay feet. And the coming ki- kingdom of Christ strikes the statue on its feet of clay. Smashes the whole thing based on the smashing of the feet. And so it says, Daniel 2, 34 and 35, While you were watching, O king, Nebuchadnezzar, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. The chaff is like particles of gold and silver and bronze and iron and clay. It's just like a pile of nothing, like a pile of sawdust. All the human kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And then a wind blows all of the evidence away, like a a whirlwind. And there's nothing left. The threshing floor is clean. And the rock that struck the statue in the feet of clay, became a huge mountain that filled the whole earth. The rock represented the kingdom of Christ. And unlike all of those human kingdoms, it will last forever. It says in Daniel 2.44, In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another. It will, it will crush all of those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. The feet of clay is the mortality of the leaders. God said to Adam, you're going to sink back down into the dust from which you came. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. That's the feet of clay. We're going to die. But Jesus has triumphed over death. He cannot die again. And so he will reign forever and ever. Human kingdoms are dust in the wind. Just as Isaiah said, in Isaiah 40, 22 through 24, God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. 
He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and rulers, reduces rulers of the world to nothing. No sooner are they planted. No sooner are they sown. No sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. It's the same image. Um, every morning I uh, read a biography to my kids of Adonai Judson. And so we get up you know, a little early in the morning and read about them. And he was a missionary in the 1820s to Burma. And uh, he had the opportunity to sail up the Irrawaddy River uh, along the jungles of Burma to see the king. To prostrate himself at the golden feet. That's what that was called. So he's going to see the king of Burma. But as he does, he passes by all the former, the ancient kingdom, uh, uh, royal cities of previous Burmese kings. See, the, the pattern in Burma was that when the son took the throne, he would build his own royal city. And not be in his father's royal city. And within 10, 20 years or less, the jungle just totally captures that former royal city and turns it to nothing. And so as they were sailing up the Irrawaddy River, they're seeing all these previous royal cities, these capital cities of previous Burmese kings. A cautionary tale to the present ruler of Burma at that time. Someday you're going to die. And your royal city of Ava is going to be reduced to jungle again. The kingdom of God and of Christ, however, will last forever and ever. For all eternity, Christ and his kingdom will last. Now, the final conquest of this royal kingdom will be achieved only by the immeasurable greatness of God's sovereign power. So the 24 elders join the praise. Look at verse 16 and 17. The 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. So they're prostrating themselves before God in joyful worship. They're thanking God for the open display of his sovereign power, which is essential to seizing back the kingdom of the world from Satan and from the Antichrist. The wicked human rulers. They celebrate the awesome power that it's going to take for God to finally establish Christ's reign on earth. Now this is my understanding of history. God raises up monsters. Allows them to have a wide range of power and then crushes them. As a display of his power. And so we have Pharaoh who enslaved the Jews... And it says in Romans 9, verse 17, Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God says that to all of the massive monsters there have ever been. But the the greatest monster is yet to come. The beast is coming. Now, it says in, in the text that we praise you because you have taken your great power and begun to reign. This is a very great display of your power Satan, Antichrist all the human opposition is not going to hand it to now I struggle with this this is kind of like my job is to just struggle over things that you guys probably just read on through it's like oh that's great praise God for his power like yes but we're talking about omnipotence infinite power 
So if we were to say to God, was that particularly difficult for you to do? What do you think he would say? It'd be like saying to Jesus, of all your healings, which one was the hardest to do? It's like it's a ridiculous question. They were all equally easy for me. I can do anything. And so think of the, uh, the sun. If you could talk to the, to the raging inferno that is the sun and say, which is hardest for you to ignite? A matchstick, a twig, a branch, a tree, or a forest? What would the sun say if it could speak? It's like, they're all fine. Just bring them. I'll ignite them. No difficulty for me at all to ignite any of the above. Give me a world of forests. I'll burn it all. That's, that's omnipotence. But from our perspective as created beings, this is a huge accomplishment. The power of Satan, of the red dragon, and of the demons, and of the beast, and of the world conquering empire that he's going to set up, will be the most powerful the world has ever seen, directly attacking the people of God and slaughtering them. And so from our perspective, it's going to take immense power to set this kingdom up. And he will do it. And so the elders fell down on their faces and they worship God and they give thanks to God for it. For that's what they have yearned for in their hearts. Would you please take that omnipotence of yours and clean this world up? At last he does it. But the joy of heaven is not shared by the inhabitants of the earth. So look at verse 18. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. So the coming of the kingdom of God enrages the people of the earth. They've not been praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. They're not praying that prayer. Actually, the kingdom of God and of Christ is repulsive to them to every fiber of their being. It's the very thing they do not want. They do not find Jesus' yoke easy and his burden light. They do not think it wonderful that a thrice holy God actively reigns over as every aspect of his kingdom. They're not excited about it. They're not thrilled that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. They're not attracted to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so they hate this. They're filled with rage. Now this rage is clearly depicted in Psalm 2. And those of you that turn there, that's want to focus now on that. Psalm 2. And it has characterized 20 centuries of human opposition to Christ and his kingdom. Psalm 2 verse 1 through 3 says, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. So the nations of the world are enraged and take their stand against God and against Christ. And they say, let us break their chains and throw off their fetters. Like I said, they don't consider his yoke easy. They want to throw it off. So the kings of the earth, who were enemies of Christ throughout history, have taken their power and authority at every stage of history and have fought against the Lord and against his Christ. Psalm 2.4 gives God's reaction. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. He laughs. It's a laugh of judgment. It's a laugh of derision. If you, all of you banded together, all of your power together, I would still laugh. If all of the demons, everyone were together against me. If every created being took their stand against me, I would still laugh. Omnipotence. 
And this is God's decree and action after that laughter. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, this is Christ speaking, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your possession. And you will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. That's the decree of God. He's going to give the world to Jesus. Psalm 2. And then, then the psalmist gives some advice. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry with you and you be destroyed in your way. For the wrath of the Lord can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 2. You thought I forgot about Psalm 2. I just put it in a totally bad place in the sermon at that moment. But Psalm 2 tells us about the rage. And the thing about this, this rage-filled opposition to Christ and his kingdom is going to reach its final act in those last chapters in the book of Revelation. We will see it in the coming of the Antichrist and his blasphemous reign. We're going to see it in the great escalation of persecution. The overwhelming majority of Christian martyrs that will have ever lived have not yet been martyred. There's a huge number of martyrs yet to come. And we're going to see it in the way that the world and its leaders, its sub-kings under the Antichrist will gather for one last battle against the people of God at Armageddon. One last time they will fight. And their rage is a replica of the dragon's rage, Satan's rage, that we're going to see in the next chapter, Revelation 12, 12. He, Satan, is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. Finally, verse 18, judgment day, eternal rewards and and endless wrath. The time has come, it says, for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. So judgment day is coming. And with the seventh trumpet come the events that are going to lead rapidly to the day of the Lord and judgment on the wicked forces of evil. And many verses talk about the day of the Lord or judgment day. It says in Hebrews 4.13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything's uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Jesus said, on the day of judgment, we'll have to give an account for every careless word that we have spoken. The time will have come at last for that judgment. God's been waiting patiently for that day to come. And predicting again and again that it will come. Later in the book, we're going to have Judgment Day clearly depicted. Revelation 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And all of us who are genuine believers in Christ, we're going to get rewarded by God. Isn't that incredible? God's actually going to reward any good deed you did done by faith, done for the glory of God, done with a, a, a loving demeanor, the heart of love for it. He's going to reward anything, no matter how great or small. Great courage shown in going to an unreached people group and taking your life in your hands, maybe even dying that that group might come to faith in Christ. Or small things like giving a cup of cold water to somebody like that on their way. God doesn't forget anything. And it says in Hebrews 6, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the labor you've shown him. He's going to reward the saints and the prophets and all those that have served him faithfully. And he's also going to destroy those who destroy the earth. 
This shows the special anger that God has reserved for the wicked of the earth whose sins have resulted in the destruction of his beautiful planet. After God made this beautiful world, everything was arranged just how he wanted it to be. It was so beautiful. The oceans and the rivers and the lakes and the mountains and all of the sea creatures and all of the the air-breathing animals and the insects and birds. Everything was beautiful and God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. Very good. So who are those who destroy the earth? Well, the entire human race, for one. Because in Adam we sinned, we fell, and God cursed the earth with a curse because of human sin. It says in Romans 8, 20, 21, the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. But this verse... The time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth might also zero in on people who have in a specific way destroyed aspects of the earth. Ecological disasters. People who through their industrial greed or other things have ravaged some aspect of the planet, polluting the sky, polluting the earth, polluting the water. Destroying the beautiful world that God made that God is going to judge people who destroy the earth. And he's going to make in its place a beautiful new world. In verse 19 we see heaven's temple unveiled. Very interesting ending to this chapter. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. And within his temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant. So the language of the Old Covenant, the Ark, and the temple is used to show heavenly realities. As I've said many times before, Moses' tabernacle and the Ark, the golden box that he made. Acacia wood inlaid and overlaid with gold. That box... All of that was just a type and a shadow and a symbol of a heavenly temple. And so also Solomon's temple, the same thing, a type and a shadow. Hebrews 8 tells us that the Levitical priest served in a a sanctuary as a copy. It's just a copy, a replica. So do not think that like in Steven Spielberg's movie where they find the, the ark at Tannis, you remember? It's hard to imagine I'm even talking about this, but you know they found it. And, and like the lid got blown up like to the sky, like way, way up high, but then it came back down to the earth and they ended up with it and they put it in a shipping crate and it's some warehouse somewhere near Washington, D.C. And if they just had kept better records that we could all, probably the British Museum would get it at some point, have it, and it would end up at the British Museum. That's a, a, a joke for, I don't know how they ended up with artifacts from all over the world, but they did. Um, and they might end up with the Ark. Don't think like that. It's got nothing to do with that. I actually think the thing's destroyed. I think God's in the process, in the habit of destroying his physical replica things. The bronze serpent, other things get destroyed. No, no, this is the genuine reality of what the ark symbolized in heaven. And what it symbolized, that was the place where you heard the voice of God, where you had communion with God, where God in a glory cloud was over the mercy seat and he spoke to Moses and he spoke to the high priest. And that's where the blood was poured by the high priest once a year. And that's where the law of Moses, the actual tablets were of stone in the ark and the jar of manna. All of that represents communion with God. Intimate, close fellowship with God by atoned for sinners. And that's what they saw in heaven. And so there's this sense of of the fear and the the judgment that comes, flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, earthquake, and great hailstorm. 
applications. Well, week after week, I preach these astonishing things from this book. And for me, all I can say is the most important thing you can do is delight in the coming king and kingdom. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. That means let me be your king. Stop fighting my kingly rule. Bow your neck. Let me put my yoke on your neck. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For, you are, for I am gentle and humble at heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Don't fight my kingdom. Delight in my kingdom. Submit to Christ. If you have never trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, do it right now. Christ is the Son of God, died on the cross in your place as an atoning sacrifice. Trust in Him and come to Christ. And for us, our job is to delight in that kingdom evermore. Celebrate it. Yearn for it. Look forward to it. One of the big differences between Christian and non-Christian is we are looking forward to this kingdom. We can't wait for it to come. Non-Christians are enraged at the coming kingdom. But we need to pray as never before. Oh God, may your name be held in honor. May it be hallowed all over the world. And may your kingdom come. And may your will at last be done on earth in the same way that it's being done right now in heaven. And then we need to live like this. We shouldn't worry saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear. For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. What does it mean to seek first his kingdom? It means to pray for it to come and to evangelize and to embrace missions, to talk about lost, to talk to lost people about this, to look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. I, I can't wait for the international picnic tomorrow. I'm looking forward to it because I never get an easier chance to share the gospel with people from all over the world. I don't have to get on a plane. People from, from all over the world come to a picnic that we host, eating our food. So they're going to have to listen to at least some of us, if not many of us, talking to them about Jesus. It never gets easier. This is like worldwide evangelism, like in one picnic place. That's so cool. So even if you don't come to the picnic, tomorrow in the middle of the day around noon, one o'clock, pray for us. Because we are going to be sharing the gospel with people from all over the world. But even if you don't come, find somebody this week that you know is lost or you think is lost and share the gospel with them. Talk to them about the coming kingdom. And for you, feed the delight that you have in the coming kingdom. Get excited about it. Look forward to it. And celebrate it. You don't have to put on like the hallelujah chorus when you go home. And and just sing the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Hallelujah, hallelujah, and he will reign forever and ever. Just say something like that in prayer to God this afternoon. Close with me in prayer. Father, thank you for the time we've had to celebrate, to rejoice, to delight in the coming kingdom. And Father, I pray that you would just give us a zeal and an energy and a delight such as we've never had before based on the scripture. That we would just be so evidently, clearly filled with joy and hope. And that we would allow that to move us to share the gospel with people as we have opportunity. Father, we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes 
and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.